When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah! Is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo. Hey, this is Duray. Welcome to Posse of the View. On this episode, it's me, Kai, Diar, and Miles talking about the news that you don't know from the week before. And then I sit down with the one and only former mayor, Michael Tubbs, to discuss his new memoir, The Deeper the Roots. And the, and the advice for this week is about grace, is that people are going through a lot. I feel like I've been through a lot. Most of the people I've been around, this has just been a hard 18, 19 months. And the reality is, is that a lot of people around us disappoint us or don't meet our expectations. And sometimes we disappoint ourselves and we don't meet our own expectations. So give yourself grace, give the people around you grace. And that doesn't mean sort of excusing things that hurt you or harm you, but it does mean sort of thinking more deeply about the total context and knowing that we can be kinder sometimes than we are. Here we go. Y'all, my news this week is from the LA Times. Um, And it kind of uh, was serendipitous how this news came to me. Um, I was on the phone this week with some of my Maestro team members and Naima Keith. Naima um, is VP of Education and Programming at LACMA, among other things. She's a brilliant curator and has been in the art space jamming for a very long time. So we were very honored to have the opportunity to speak with her. But what she brought to our attention, among many other things, brilliant things, is Destination Crenshaw, which we actually had not heard of. Um, And so as the LA Times article points out, you know, Destination Crenshaw is a little over a mile of Crenshaw Boulevard, which is essentially going to be transformed um, into an arts corridor. Um, And so it's super exciting. And I really wanted to dig in more about how this all came to be, which the article doesn't necessarily highlight, but I encourage you all to go to destinationcrenshaw.la to learn more information, um, because I just think this is such an incredible project that really came out of kind of a crisis in Crenshaw and then folk, Black folks getting together to organize um, and then having a, an answer that is just going to be so compelling and I think impact um, so many people um, of all ages, all hues, actually, not just Black folks, um, for such a long time to come. But for y'all that don't know, Crenshaw Boulevard is really the spine of the Los Angeles Black community. Um, and some of this I'm reading from DestinationCrenshaw.la, so I want to give them give them um, their glory on this. Um, so Crenshaw has always been a place of dynamic expression, Black culture, Black economic development, Black economic legacy. Um, and ultimately, the corridor and Destination Crenshaw came to be because at one point the city was planning to put a train on Crenshaw Boulevard um and so the it it was planned for you know this this train to go from well, through Crenshaw really to LAX to Los, to the the airport in Los Angeles really slicing through the heart of you know this black main thoroughfare and we've seen this done time and time again through eminent domain in so many cities and this has been happening over decades Um, And what would happen is that if this train was put there on Crenshaw, um, it would have uprooted 300 business parking spaces, 400 trees, obviously impacting business, impacting culture in that thoroughfare. Um, You know, and there's also an argument, too, about cultural erasure that would have happened, too, with this with this train going um, through through Crenshaw. But as the website points out for Destination Crenshaw, Black Los Angeles had a plan and really a creative, collaborative and community led response to this injustice really brought this whole idea um, around Destination Crenshaw. So it's exciting to see that, you know, all these folks came together um, with the goal of one continuing to preserve and and really breathe the the creativity and the resilience and the, the potential of this community. Um, but also, you know, drive economic and cultural revitalization to the Crenshaw Corridor. So it's just exciting to see how this has all come together. I'm I'm so excited to see, um, you know, 
when it comes to be, it's it's not planned to debut and, and until fall of 2022. Some of the artists that are participating are just, you know, top artists, top black artists, um, folks like Kehinde Wiley, and we're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be these huge sculptures, and all of the art pieces really having having meaning and and contextualization in terms of black identity, um, black power, um, the legacy of, of of black folks in this country. So. All that to say, check out the LA Times article. There are more details there, obviously, but also, you know, go directly to the source, destinationcrenshaw.la. Um, shout out to Naomi Keith again for putting us on. And we're so super excited to continue to follow this program and to be there at its debut. My news for this week is about a new study that came out. It was profiled in Axios, and the study shows that Black offenders are more likely to get federal life sentences. Just to zoom out, remember that the federal government incarcerates the least amount of people in the system, a ton of people still, but there are about 2.3 million people incarcerated in a given day. Federal system is uh, responsible for about 250,000 or so of those people. And what's wild about this is that the study shows that two out of three people serving life terms are defendants of color. And when you disaggregate that by race, uh, what you find is that more than 4,800 of all offenders were eligible for life imprisonment and almost 1,200 received life sentences. Black offenders accounted for fewer than a third of all cases, but constituted nearly half of those eligible for life sentences. That's wild. And white offenders accounted for more than a third of all cases, but constituted less than a quarter of those eligible. Now, we zoom out. These are things that people have believed for a long time. These are things that people sort of knew the inequities were baked into the system. But this study confirms so much of what people had understood before that regardless of uh, the offense or regardless of a host of other factors, that the overrepresentation in the system is high, but the overrepresentation and the severity of the punishment is high no matter how we track it. And the takeaway that I had for this and why I wanted to bring it is that it's a reminder that when we think about just the impact of incarceration on communities, families. You know, I was talking to somebody recently about their work on wealth, and I'm like, "You, it is impossible to do wealth work that is not also incarceration work. Like, it is, what we have done to Black and brown people is just so wild and at scale that I don't know how the other work happens without undoing it. And this is just another example for me that when you look at it, it's like Black people underrepresented in the the amount of cases, but overrepresented in the punishment is just like par for the course for both how people think about this system and almost all other inequities in other systems. So one to bring it here, one of people to think about it. The study was published in Criminology, uh, in the the magazine Criminology, and it is called Life Lessons: Examining Sources of Racial and Ethnic Disparity in Federal Life Sentences Without Parole. And again, a life sentence without parole means that you will be in jail forever, essentially, because there is no parole and parole will be the way that you got out. In those places, you could technically get your sentence commuted by the governor, but that rarely happens in ways that people benefit from. So one to bring that here, not the most uh, uplifting, but but true. Don't go anywhere. More Politics of the People is coming. Politics of the People is brought to you by Dems. That's D-E-M-Z. Every day we make decisions about who we support through our votes, the products we buy, and the organizations we donate to. When a company or candidate doesn't align with our values, we usually stop supporting them, or we should. But what about our investments? Chances are many of you have investment products that track the S&P 500, which is made up of the 500 largest U.S. publicly traded companies. But what if we told you that over half of these companies make significant political donations to the GOP? In comes Dems. Dems was built by a team of researchers and finance experts who grew tired of not knowing where our money was going across investment products. Through extensive research and financial know-how, they put together a product that includes only those companies from the S&P 500 that have donated 75% or more of their political donations to Democrats, on average over the last three federal election cycles. Now, you can get similar exposure and hopefully the same or better performance that you would expect from the entire S&P 500 without investing in companies that may be funneling money into Matt Gates's Venmo account. DIMS, D-M-Z, that's the ticker symbol, trades on the NASDAQ and is available through top investment houses and brokerages such as Schwab, TD Ameritrade, and Fidelity. 
You can finally put your money where your vote is. Search for the Dems ticker, that's D-E-M-Z, wherever you invest, or visit Dems.fund to learn more. Investing involves risk. Principal loss is possible. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and additional information can be found in the fund's summary or full prospectus, which may be obtained by visiting Dems.fund. Please read this prospectus carefully before investing. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company, which is not affiliated with Reflection Asset Management, LLC, the advisor for the fund. This episode is brought to you by Cariuma, the sustainable sneaker brand creating cool, seriously comfortable sneakers in a way that's better for you and the planet. If you told us a few months ago that we'd willingly add our name to a wait list just to cop a pair of sneakers, we'd have figured you don't know us. That's right. The pod with the lightning fast Twitter hands has found something worth waiting for. The best news is that you, dear listener, don't have to wait another moment. Kariuma has just restocked this bestseller, the Akka. Akka comes in both a low top and a high top, featuring Kariuma's signature memory foam insoles for all-day comfort. These sneakers are hand-finished and come in a ton of colors, including fall-ready neutrals, canvas, and suede with colors like rose, gray, off-white, and camel. Kariuma believes you and the planet deserve a better sneaker. That's why they source premium planet-conscious materials to create good-looking, unbelievably comfortable sneakers like Akka. We think they're pretty great, and so do the 26,000-plus people on this recent wait list. Ever heard of Helen Mirren, John Hamm, or Gabrielle Union? They're fans, too. Akka is available in a classic organic cotton canvas, as well as the ultra-soft, ethically-sourced suede from LWG-certified suppliers, ideal for fall and winter. Low tops are on the menu, but Karyuma sneakers also come in a high-top silhouette for a cozier fit. Karyuma ships all their sneakers free and fast in the USA and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They deliver right to your front door using single-box recycled packaging. And for a limited time, Pod Save the People listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash PSTP to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash PSTP for 15% off only for a limited time. Festac 77 was one of my discoveries in the news. I found it on um, afterall.org. It was, to put it simply, it's a festival that happened um, in Lagos in 1977 in Nigeria. Um, it included people like Miriam um, Kiba, Sun Ra, um, and, then, uh, and a host of other acts that um, went to go perform there. I was really fascinated with this festival, not just because it was just up my alley and things that I'm interested about, but because I didn't know about it. And it reminded me of the um, Soul documentary that Questlove um, directed and produced earlier this year. And it really made me think about how many things have happened in America, <laughs> in the world, in the nation, um, in, 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 in all around the world that we do not know about that really housed and, and even maybe even foreshadowed where Black culture is going and where it could go. Early in 1977, thousands of artists, writers, musicians, activists, and scholars from Africa and the Black diaspora assembled in Lagos for Festac 77, the second world Black and African festival of arts and culture. With a radically ambitious agenda underwritten by Nigeria's newfound oil wealth, Festac 77 would unfold as a complex, glorious, and excessive culmination of half a century of transatlantic and pan-Africanist cultural political gatherings. Um, as I looked around for more um, information on Festac 77, it was sparse, to say the least. Um, and there wasn't um, as much footage as I, as I would want. There wasn't enough, uh, much um, even like conversation around it as I would want. And again, it kind of connects to No Name, the library, and um, research and preservation and, 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 and the necessity of it. We really need to make it a point to preserve what has happened in the past, specifically the things that have happened in the past that are positive, <laughs> the things that have happened in the past that um, make us uh, smile or that inform us or that inspire us because we are a people that builds on yesterday to 
totally make our tomorrows the um, most the best tomorrows that we can create. So we don't just create things out of nowhere, um, even if they are innovative and new. We create things through um, through research and, and an appreciation from the past. And I think Black people, specifically American Black people, but um, I think Black people uh, just globally, we uh, are great at remembering and, and it is a part of our um, just cultural DNA to preserve what has happened yesterday. And I think that specifically because of the access we have, we have a great um, need and, um, and, and privilege to be able to at least attempt uh, the preservation of uh, what has happened in the past because we have more access to media tools, um, technology, and more time. A lot of, a lot of us, not, of course this is not everybody, but a lot of us are granted with more time to be able to sit and preserve these things. Um, and I'm hoping that the the bug of curiosity setting in on um, different people around things like Festag 77 in, um, in Nigeria and other um, festivals that maybe I do not know the name of. Um, and that is my news. My news this week comes from Queen Anne's County, Maryland, which is a small county on the eastern shore of Maryland. And it comes to us from the front lines of school leadership. As many of you know, um, I'm a former school superintendent. I ran D.C. public schools for six years. And the superintendency is a job that I think lots of people know intellectually that it is a very difficult job. But I don't think that people have a real insight into how difficult the job is. And I wanted to lift this story up because it's about a woman named Dr. Andrea Kane. And Dr. Kane is the first African-American superintendent of Queen Anne's County Schools. It's a high performing district and um, it's a dream. It was a dream come true for her to become a superintendent. And this woman who had, you know, more than 20 years of education experience took on, took on might even be too um, affirmative a word, but she wrote a letter uh, to her community in the wake of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, inviting people to conversation, calling out anti-Black racism and inviting people to conversation about how they are going to deal with this in their school system. And she says um, she wrote Black Lives Matter and then everything just imploded. It turns out that um, her writing this letter created a year-long firestorm um, of negative engagement with a certain segment of community members in her um, in her area, and ultimately resulted in her resigning from the superintendency. And I bring this to the pod. I bring this article to the pod because. Um, I I think that it's really important for people to understand, number one, that leaders, school leaders, any kind of leaders are people and are deeply feeling the events that are happening. I also think it's important because as a school leader, um, we have to help our young people un understand and make sense of what's going on around them. And that's the thing. Um, that Dr. Kane tried to do. She tried to, like many educators across the country, use the George Floyd moment to recommit the district to uh, goals around racial justice um, and to help students make sense of what they were seeing on the news and in the world. And so in, in service of that goal, Dr. Kane um, helped to support young people who wanted to protest and have conversation and discussion. Um, she supported a, a group of folks who were coming together in a Sunday dinner environment to talk about systemic racism in their district. Um, she actually had evidence. There had been reports done about disproportionate youth representation in uh, in Queen Anne's County, black students make up only 6% of the student body, but they are overrepresented in arrests and sanctions in the districts, in suspensions in the district, in dropout rates, and in educational attainment. In fact, she called black students in Queen Anne's County underserved and overdisciplined. 
And in response to this, a group of um, parents who call themselves the Kent Island Patriots um, decided to take Dr. Kane on. They called for her resignation. They protested. Um, they did all of these things. They showed up at school board meetings and made school board meetings untenable. In fact, they ran a slate of candidates um, to defeat existing school board members so that they could have a majority share of the school board votes. And they were successful in that. In fact, um, once they attained a majority on the school board, they began to turn back some of the policies that were put in place to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this group, the Kent Island Patriots, actually is indicative of a movement across America. There's another article um, in the Washington Post this week about Moms for Liberty. And it is, um, they've turned, uh, the title of the article is Moms for Liberty has turned parental rights into a rallying cry for conservative parents. Yes, all over the country, uh, we are seeing conservative parents like the Kent Island Patriots or Moms for Liberty um, who are standing up, according to them, against the government um, to determine what is taught in schools, to determine who gets to teach and lead. Um, and their mantra is, we don't co-parent with the government. Um, and this is, it, it. in some cases, it looks like these are small and isolated incidents across the United States. But in fact, the Washington Post article goes on to point out that um, these kinds of conservative parent groups have been the most disruptive to the educational environment that many folks have seen in decades. And in fact, this is actually a precursor to what we should expect to see in the midterm elections and beyond. In fact, that this is a um, grassroots um, organizing campaign for the Republican Party, um, similar to uh, the moral majority of the 80s or the Tea Party in the 2010 elections. And especially in Florida, where Moms for Liberty started, they are uh, seeing um, huge increases in Republican voter registration. In fact, they've been trying, They've it's a way to now engage 20 and 30 year old females in the Republican Party in ways that they've never been before. Um, come with me back to Queen Anne's County where Dr. Kane, the superintendent, is not only the superintendent trying to lead in a time where this conversation about race is incredibly fraught and fractious, um, but in fact, she's trying to support her students in their conversations. There are teachers who came to Queen Anne's, which again is a high-performing district, in part because of her leadership and because of her willingness to take on issues of equity. And, you know, there were uh, groups of people who rallied to support Dr. Kane. And Dr. Kane is an African-American woman, a mother of two sons. And so our leadership is not just professional. Our leadership is often personal. And so could you imagine being an African-American woman leading in this particular time and being attacked um, for your beliefs about or for your advocacy to ensure that every student in your in your school district is represented to ensure that we learn to treat one another with empathy and compassion to ensure that um, every student is treated fairly across your district. And ultimately that ends up wearing on you as a person. And so, you know, ultimately as these, the, the Kent Island Patriot parents continue to gain more and more ground, Dr. Kane ended up uh, resigning. She watched them reinstate people who had made racist comments and had been fired. She watched them abandon critical initiatives that were put in place to support diversity, equity, and inclusion across the district. And ultimately, she actually said um, they made her feel subhuman. They hung me out and stripped me bare. And so I, I bring this to the pod because, 
It is a tragedy of leadership for me. Um, Only 2% of the nation's superintendents are black and many people are quitting in response to these kinds of backlashes to DEI efforts. And I would contend that we need good leadership and we need representative leadership and we need to make sure that things like what happened to Dr. Kane don't happen to any other superintendent. Again, we have as a community the ability to determine who leads and how they lead and how we support them. And we need to be vigilant in this particular time as we protect school leaders and the job that they are doing. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And now my conversation with former Mayor Michael Tubbs. He's one of the youngest mayors in U.S. history and also is the author of The Deeper the Roots. Today we talk about blackness, about burnout, and where to find hope. Here we go. Mayor Tubbs, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Thank you so much for having me. Always good to be in conversation with you, brother. Now, what what is your what is your world like? I, we first met uh, what feels like forever ago. Uh, we're both young, and it still feels like we've lived a couple lifetimes. Uh, when you were the mayor of Stockton, what is what's going on in your world today? Um, I have two children now. I have a two year old, and I have <laughs> a child who was born August thirtieth. So my wife and I are parents of two children, under <laughs> two and under, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we've relocated to Los Angeles. Um, in addition to the book, I'm a special advisor to Governor Newsom on economic mobility and opportunity. Um, as a part of that work, next year we're launching an initiative called Ending Poverty in California, which we really focus on how we make the Golden State actually golden for everyone, which I'm excited about. Um, I've been doing some narrative stuff, like getting more into storytelling um, and then enjoying the beach and, and kind of enjoying time with my family. I love it. How is, is, is this your first time living in LA and how is that different than living in Stockton or like, what is it like to live in, uh, live in a, a different place than you've lived for such a long time? Yeah, I only have ever lived in Stockton outside of the four years in college. So moving to a different city was difficult. But in many ways, I think it was necessary because it's given me the time and space to actually reflect um, on my time in Stockton, reflect on Stockton as a place, and think about sort of all the lessons, the wins, the losses that come from there. And L.A. is just amazing. Uh, we live in South L.A., uh, which has more black people than anywhere else out, out west of the Mississippi. I love all of our elected officials. I love... Um, the art, the culture, I think it's going to be a nice place to to raise our kids. It almost feels like a renaissance of sorts is happening um, in L.A., and particularly in South L.A., so it's been really good to be here. And my best friend lives 10 minutes away. My wife's made him honor her best friend lives 10 minutes away. Um, so it's really good to be in a place where we have sort of friends that are our age, because in Stockton, many of my friends were older, which is fun. But, I mean, most 26-, 27-year-olds aren't kicking with 50-year-olds all day. Uh, so it's good to be right. in a place where there's folks around our age who are also having kids who are also um, upwardly mobile, et cetera, to be our friend as one of those who are a little bit older and more seasoned. I love it. Now, you have a book that is uh, coming out, The Deeper the Root, A Memoir of Hope, and happy to talk about the book. I have, is the book, I have the book. I, like, I have a copy so that I could talk to you today. But it's not out yet, is it? No, it comes out November 16th. So you can pre-order from independent bookstores, from anywhere books are sold. Um, but the book and the audio book comes out November 16th. Got it. That's what I thought. I was like, I have it, though. Um, now, uh, you know, let's jump into it. Is The book starts with an introduction to your mom in, in a lot of ways. Like, she's such a, a big part of the first chapter in our introduction to you. I'd love to know, like, why is that so? How would you describe your mother's role in your life? Uh, and then you, she is named She Daddy in the in the book. And can you just give us a glimpse into why? Yeah, my mom is the most one of the most interesting people I think because she I find her to be so influential and so, but she's so quiet. She doesn't take up a lot of space. She doesn't, which is funny being my mom. She doesn't like to talk. She doesn't like interviews. She actually doesn't like attention. And she thinks that everything, she's like, well, what's the big deal? Like, this is what I'm supposed to do as a mother, et cetera. And I thought it was important to talk about her from the beginning because so much of what she 
so much of what she has been taught and socialized was this idea that her story, her struggles, her strengths, and her weaknesses weren't worthy to be shared. That 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 those things should not be talked about. That that that, that it wasn't her who she was, her dreams, her aspirations, her experiences didn't matter. They were just life. So it's important for me to start with her because if you remember growing up, her adage was like, "Don't tell anyone our business." So I don't think it was just about being embarrassed. I think it was about sort of too much information can be weaponized against you, or that no one actually really cares about what you about who you are. They just care about what you do. And I think it was important to start with her, to, to, for her to show her, like, no, mom, our stories are valuable, that we're worth being talked about, that we're worth being discussed, that we're both, we're worth being emulated in, 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 in some ways. And what about Auntie Tasha? Yeah, so um, I was really blessed in that, in addition to my mom, who had me very young, she was in high school when I was born, my aunt and my grandmother, my nana, they were all sort of like a, a, a triple wall of mothers. So my aunt is... is super important in my life and in the book because she was sort of like my mom's really hard like she's not a very soft or sentimental person even though she's very sensitive but she's very like hard tough she's single mom raising two black boys and really in, in, embraced this notion of being very hard um, and, and almost callous in, in, in a way and not really soft but my aunt is the opposite she's a big teddy bear she's super emotional she's a cry very baby she's super like loving and she loves people and she's very social and she's very talkative. Um, and she was also equally had a role in raising me. And she was just incredibly important as a help to my mom, but also just her real emphasis on education, educational opportunities, always buying me like charging a bunch of books on her credit card. So I would have things to read. And she was always sort of a, a constant in my life as well. as was my grandmother who was the real spiritual grounding and the real kind of spiritual stalwart and was really the matriarch of our family and made sure we were in church, made sure we were taken care of, care of made sure um, that we learned what it meant to serve and to be a part of community. Um, I think all three of them um, were necessary um, for me to become the person I'm becoming. And I went, wanted this book to also be an ode to them and Black women and Black mothers like them who are saving democracy, raising kids, and, and doing all the things. And, you know, you talk about your father's proximity uh, and uh, sort of inclusion in the criminal justice system in a host of ways in the book and, and his time being incarcerated. How is that? How did that influence your work as mayor? How has that shaped the way that you think about the system and your relationship with the family? Yeah, I, I um, actually, the older I get, the more I am reflective. And the more I'm appreciative of sort of what I've learned from having a father who's been incarcerated the most 90 plus percent of my life. And I think one of the things I've learned, and it's a journey, because I think growing up, part of it was a motivation to be the best. Part of it was this idea of pulling myself on my bootstraps and proving everyone wrong and sort of being afraid to make any mistake, being afraid to not be perfect, being afraid to be human and, and, and infallible. But then as I got older, I realized that it wasn't necessarily just his actions, but sort of the actions of policymakers. He was incarcerated under the three strikes law. And his last strike was, wasn't that he murdered somebody. It wasn't that he had even hurt, harmed a woman or, or a child. He, um, he robbed somebody, but he robbed a rival drug dealer. Um, to pay for my sister's funeral, right? Like, and I think that context I didn't have growing up. And when I learned that, I remember being like, oh my gosh, I had written this person off as this monster. When he's a guy who made a terrible decision, but isn't, isn't a, 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 a monster or, or a serial killer or anything like that. But I think in terms of my approach, it's really illustrated to me, A, the power of redemption, the power of second chances. And so much of my work as mayor was focused on sort of preventing violence, but also providing on-ramps for folks who may have caused harm, who are now out to be part of the solution. I've spent so much time as mayor in San Quentin and um, other prisons, Folsom and others, talking to incarcerated folk and talking about how much we needed them to be part of the community when they um, come back. And I think the part of that work was rooted in sort of just, in a way, my father. And I also would say that a lot of the work we do on prevention in terms of education, in terms of the universal scholarship program, 
was also rooted in this notion that I wanted to prevent kids from feeling like they had to sort of go on past at least that outcome. And lastly, I would say I think to the chagrin of other people, because I knew people would try to use my story and try to use it to demonize people and would love for me to be the face of sort of tough on crime, um, the face of, of, of cruelty, the face of lock them up, lock them up. And I just refused to do that. And I was very, very cognizant of using the fact that my father was incarcerated to have a different conversation, a conversation of redemption, a conversation of how incarceration destroys families and communities, a conversation about all that's wasted in prison, and a conversation about how those who are in prison, those who are returning from prison, have an outside influence on the safety of our community. We should probably be more intentional about how we invest and engage in them. That makes sense to me. I'll come, I'll come back to your family in a, in a moment. Um, I was also really struck by the role that school played in, in the way you thought about possibility, and you write about Langston Hughes Academy being so transformative. Uh, can, can you talk about the role that school and teachers or just the education setting played in shaping your life? And I know you appreciate this as an educator, but growing up, I, I loved school, but I hated teachers. Like, I love school. I love the social parks. I love the student groups. I love the hallways. I love the drama. I loved going to school. I hated teachers. I hated being in class. But I think I have the language for it now, but after getting my master's in education policy and, and serving as an educator for three years myself, I realized that part of what I, I hated was racism and microaggressions. I hated sort of my identity being weaponized or used as a reason for teachers to be suspicious of whether I did the work myself or not, or for being kicked out for asking questions, or for refusing or fighting back to tropes around how folks who weren't in advanced classes were going to be in prison or going to be pumping our gas someday, as teachers would tell us, or that being black meant you weren't in calculus, but that, that to be a black person in calculus, you have to be actually not black. Or you're so, and that stuff used to bother me. So I was kicked out all the time. But then before college, I spent a summer as a like student aide, but ended up actually being a, <laughs> not supposed to be, but ended up being like an eighth grade teacher for the summer. And I realized that, wow, that, that a caring adult, an adult who cares, an adult who has love and empathy and believes in the dignity of all students, can have an impact. And I saw sort of in my students, my family, myself, a lot of my friends who didn't make it to college, et cetera. And that's why I became convinced that sort of changing the cast of characters in a school system, in a, in a school district, in a classroom really matters. And, and, and that's when I thought at the time I would be like a superintendent one day. Um, and I think even now the stories of my students are what inspire me. And, and, and I just realized, again, that talent and intellect are universal, but resources and opportunities are not. And you became an activist in college, right? Did I get that right? Like, is that where you first yeah, sort no, of... No, in high school, I did some stuff. I was in the ACP, so I remember the first big campaign was the Tukey Williams death penalty campaign in high school. Um, I did, like, some student government stuff, but then in college, that's where I really became sort of, to your point, more of an... did more act, activism in terms of not being part of a formal institution, not being part of an institution trying to make change. So my first week in college, our first month, I led a protest at City Hall against racial profiling in, in Palo Alto. And this is in 2008, and I think you would appreciate it just given your work. But we were having conversations then that sadly were still conversations that were happening 10 years later, like around sort of stops and, and traffic stops and being dispersed with Black folks in terms of I remember they said their training, the diverse, the training program of the police department in 2008 was going to the Holocaust Museum. And that was like the extent, and watching the movie crash. And I remember being nice and frustrated and saying, surely this is not the extent of your, um, this is not the extent of your, 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 your police officer training. And even then, I, I realized that there was this, it mattered who was in the room, who was asking the questions, who was pushing, and who was being provocative. And that was my first time, although that I know that would be a prelude to sort of the role I would play, not as an activist, but as someone, as, as, as a leader in the political system. So it was those early experiences. I remember organizing Occupy Stanford protests, which I didn't get to speak to a, a lot in the book, but leading Occupy Stanford protests during my Rhodes Scholarship weekend. 
I was leading a protest with Berkeley students before the big game protesting police brutality. So it was really, looking back, it was really interesting to see how so many of those experiences were really kind of crumbs or clues as to where I would spend most of my 20s doing, albeit from a different vantage point. Well, last story I'll tell you, I remember in 2014 being out city council and being on the U.S. one-on-one um, blocking traffic to protest the murder of Michael Brown. And I remember being incredibly nervous because I was on city council and I was in Palo Alto so I was working at Stanford as a, as a fellow at the time. And I remember being super nervous and almost not doing it because I was like, well, what if I get arrested? Like, like what does that look like for the councilman in Stockton to be breaking a law, blocking traffic in Palo Alto? Um, so, so I think that the, the, the activism experiences and, and, and sort of that, that, that leadership training um, was super formative and, and, and very instructive. You know, I feel like the last time we talked, we talked about your time as mayor and in, in 2020 and not winning re-election. One of the things that you write in the book is I was often too busy with reality to worry about politics. How do you reflect on, on that period of your life, which you're so young that I can only imagine that you'll be elected to something else if you want to in the future. Um, but what does that sentence mean? And, and, you know, how do you reflect on both that, that time, but also such an incredible run uh, that you did have as mayor of Stockton? Yeah, politics is like a really weird. It's it's almost like entertainment. It's almost like a, a, a very performative, and I really struggled with that part because all this work was personal to me. So I don't want to do anything if I just thought it was going to have an impact, and I just spent all my time and all my energy focused on the hard things, moving, pushing, and and. I, I just didn't care about how it would be perceived, or, or, or which is stupid because you have to care at some point to get votes. But that just really wasn't my focus. And particularly in 2020, I mean, you had the um, the protests against the murder of George Floyd. You had kind of COVID-19. And you had the other stuff that come with running a city. So I just really didn't pay too much attention to sort of those things. So I was really focused on setting up testing sites. I was really focused on getting a mask mandate. I was really focused on making sure my folks had food and setting up food distribution systems and making sure our nonprofits could stay open and our small businesses had support. And I was naive enough to think that just the work would be enough, that we would do such a good job that even if folks didn't like me or like my politics, they couldn't argue with, 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 with the end result. And, and that's why I think it's needed more so now in our politics. We just need leaders who do what they have with the time they're given. And if they're given more time, fine. But then that's four years, two, whatever long you have, actually govern, actually do. Because I think I, to be reelected, I was very clear what I needed to do. I needed to do nothing. I needed to just show up at ribbon cutting. I needed to demonize poor people. I needed to talk tough to young black kids and tell them to pull up their pants and tell them when to lock you up. Like, And I just refused to play that game. And I thought sort of, the work of governing, the reality of the problems we're facing will be enough to overcome that. But unfortunately, in that instance, it wasn't. Now, given that experience that you lived through, what does that say for, like, the future of politics? Like, how does that, what do you think that means? Do you think that it'll right-size itself to, to politics not being as performative? And I, and I do think that, you know, Trump did so much to damage any sense yeah. of, I don't know, integrity that people saw in the political space. But do you think it'll right-size itself? How do we get there? What does that look like? I, I think the work that you and others like you are doing are so important, but I mentioned this earlier in terms of what I'm interested in now. So much of this is a narrative game. And what did it for me was while governing, while kind of doing things, and not perfect, but doing a damn good job, part of it was that there was another group of people who weren't governing, who didn't have to govern, who just created a disinformation site and just spent four years every single day making up lies and putting money behind it and manipulating the Facebook algorithm so it became the, the news for Stockton. It was just fires and homelessness and tubs investigated. And tubs in, like they would file complaints with the Fair Political Practice Commission to say tubs is being investigated. When I was never investigated, but they were just filing claims for them to look and see if I should be investigated. Like stuff like that. And I think what it tells us about our politics is that as a body politic, we have to be more... We have to demand more of not just our elected leaders, but our information ecosystem. Like, we have to support local news. We have to 
have a, 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 a politics and a governance that allows for dissent for sure, but also it's fact-based because what you have, and we see it in the presidential elections, we see it in the congressional elections, we see it in local elections, that scrupulous actors are just spending $50,000, $100,000 on Facebook and really distorting reality in a way that has impact on electoral outcomes. And until we address that, they're going to keep getting politicians to spend all their time acting like they're doing something. Like, look at our, our friend, the senator from Arizona. She got elected playing a role. She got elected acting like she was someone who cared about working people, who was going to fight for folks, who was going to be part of the coalition to deliver the Build Back Better agenda. And she's been the, she's the reason why we don't can't have nice things. Harry Joe Manson at this moment is because our people are so busy. People are so distracted. It's easy just to manipulate, play a game, vote one way, perform another. And that's always been part of politics. But now it's become so central. It's scary because we're facing like real existential crises as a democracy. And we need like governance, leadership, things to be done and not like performing this stuff. Like, like case in point, I know you appreciate this. We had the nation on brink the summer of 2020. You had all the Democratic representatives in the House and Senate wear kente cloth and kneel in honor of the murder of George Floyd. But we have seen no legislation. And their job is to legislate. And I get Republican opposition. I, I, I get the politics, but I mean, that, for me, that's what's frustrating. That, for me, that's the type of politics I won't do. I'm not going to kneel and put on Kente cloth unless I know I'm going to get this policy passed because I think it's disrespectful um, when we do those things and then don't deliver. I get it. Yes, 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 yes. And it has been wild to watch the, the past sort of year turn into a place where, you know, now people are nervous to talk, talk about crime because it's this whole fear around the crime rates uh, rising and, and, you know, we'll see what happens there. But I want to ask you as we close, um, I asked this of you before, but what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? The piece of advice I've gotten, I know it's right, this idea of taking opportunities to rest and to reflect and to be very judicious about how you spend time, that the busy Olympics is a losing sport, that, that, that you really have to be intentional about where your time goes, where your energy goes, because you're just not here to work. <laughs> you're here to live and to enjoy and to do things that make you happy and to spend time with the people you love. So, I mean, it's easier said than done. So I think I've been, particularly after the election, I've been doing a better job of being less busy, of being more intentional about where I spend time um, and not feeling the need to prove everything all the time, but just to be, and, and, and that's enough. Tell people where they can get the book and remind people of the book title. Yeah, the book is called The Deeper the Root. It's out November 16th. Please pre-order anywhere books are sold. The local independent bookstore, Powell's Books, um, Black-owned bookstores for sure. You can go to, it's on Amazon, where I know a lot of y'all go and shop. Right? It's, it's on the Audible. It's an audio book as well. Um, the Deeper the Roots by Michael Tubb, November 16th. Awesome. Well, you're the man. We always consider your friend of the pie, and can't wait to have you back. Love you too, man. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. Mm-hmm.